Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and welcome and thank you for your company here on ADH TV. We've got a super program for you tonight, but may I be forgiven for saying there's a lot of sadness around. I alluded last night to the deaths of Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John. I had previously spoken about the passing of two significant Australian political figures, significant in different ways. David Barnett, the principal media advisor to Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, he worked with me, a flawless commitment to liberal values. And then the broadcaster turned politician John Tingle, the father of the lady you see on ABC TV, Laura Tingle. John was a fine human being of many accomplishments, an outstanding broadcaster, but also the founder of the Shooters Party. Well then, as I was in the throes of putting this program together today, the very sad news at the passing of Paul Green at 49 years of age. It's hard to digest. He was the head coach of the Cowboys in rugby league for 167 games. He won a premiership with them in 2015. He was a super player himself, 162 first grade games. He had moved from the base of the ruck like greased lightning. He represented Queensland and Australia in the Super League. He was head coach of Queensland only last year in the State of Origin series. Paul Green reportedly died at his home in Brisbane this morning and a post-mortem will be carried out to determine the cause of his death, 49 years of age. Our deepest sympathies are with his wife, Amanda, and the two children, Emerson and Jed. Well, no sooner had I digested that news than I learnt of the passing in Byron Bay this morning of Judy Cox. Now, the world of rugby was her family. She married a wallaby, Brian Cox. She and Brian were the parents of two wallabies, two sons, Mitchell and Philip. When I went to Coach Manly in 1983 as a virtual unknown, Judy Cox opened her heart to me and we have communicated ever since. She knew everybody in the world of rugby, here and overseas, and they loved her as if she were family. It has been a very rough week for many Australians. But tonight, you'll be inspired by the interview I'm about to conduct with Nigel Farage, the architect of Brexit, but a gifted, outspoken and unapologetic political commentator who will be touring Australia shortly. All those details in a moment. The rot has already started in relation to net zero emissions and a high efficiency, low emissions coal-fired power station in Queensland is being rejected by the Albanese government. I'll have the latest for you on Donald Trump and closer to home, a splendid piece of writing by one of our contributors, Nick Cater, on the emissions reduction folly. So stay with us. As I always say, strap yourselves in. There's plenty to digest and hopefully something to learn and importantly, much to entertain. You're watching Alan Jones on ADH TV. Look, when Peter Dutton became the new leader of the Liberal Party, the critics were out in force. He lacked charisma. He wouldn't be able to relate to people outside Queensland. Well, I'll tell you something. It's in our own interests to start listening to what Dutton is saying about this critical and potentially economically destructive issue of the 43% emissions reduction target by 2030, about to be enshrined in law. The Energy Minister Bowen is now running around in circles trying to reach his target of 82% of electricity to come from renewable sources in fewer than eight years. When do we describe this as self-sabotage? When we are a raw materials powerhouse and therefore should be a cheap energy powerhouse. 
instead of bending the knee to Paris and the United Nations, who have no interest whatever in our economic well-being. I have repeated over and over again the words of Morris Strong, the discredited godfather of climate change, who said in 1992, that's how long this nonsense has been going on, and I quote, we may get to the point where the only way of saving the world will be for industrialised civilization to collapse. Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? 1992. When do we wake up? Christine Stewart, the former Canadian Minister for the Environment, said, quote, no matter if the science of global warming is all phony, climate change provides the greatest opportunity to bring about equality and justice in the world, unquote. Christina Figueres of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change said in February 2014 in Brussels, quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, changing the economic development model that's been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution, unquote. Ottmar Edenhofer is a German economist regarded as one of the world's leading experts on climate change policy. He said of the Climate Change Summit in 2010, the 2010 version of last year's Glasgow, quote, basically, it's a big mistake to discuss climate policy separate from major themes of globalisation. The Climate Summit in Cancun, this was 2010 in Mexico, the Climate Summit in Cancun at the end of the month is not a climate conference, but one of the largest economic conferences since the Second World War. He said, one has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore. This is about wealth transformation, unquote. Look, I guarantee Paris to peanuts that people like Albanese and Bowen, a lot of them, have never read anything by Edenhofer or Figueres. Yet embark on this policy of self-sabotage and to support them, endless emotional speeches, protests, yes, media editorials and the big woke corporates fall into line. A UN-sponsored redistribution of wealth is the climate change agenda. China's got no intention of shutting down its coal-fired power stations and replacing them with weak, intermittent wind and solar. They want energy security and through it, national wealth, and through that, military power. Energy is the lifeblood of every nation. China is leaving the West for dead. Peter Dutton enters the fray by rightly saying that by legislating emission targets, radical activists will be able to use the courts to seek legal interpretation of what the statute means in order to shut down everything from cattle farms to road upgrades on the basis of climate change. Dutton has said, quote, the experience overseas has shown that legislating emissions targets hands control over major infrastructure projects to green activists, unquote. In the face of opposition by the bedwetters in the opposition, people like Simon Birmingham, the coalition did not support the Bowen legislation. Peter Dutton warned that once emission targets become law, legal and local activists will follow the example set by the environmentalists overseas to try to stop the government from financing or supporting a range of critical projects. Indeed, the Albanese government has already mentioned outfits like Infrastructure Australia and Export Finance Australia, which by law 
will have to take emissions targets into account. And so, get ready for an all-out attack on gas drilling, beef processing, the building of roads and ports. Do they meet legislated emissions targets? Well, it's already started. Clive Palmer has a coal-fired power station project in central Queensland. For the first time ever in this country, a federal government has proposed to reject such a project. The Queensland Labor government recommended rejection last year. And what does the Greens leader Adam Bant had to say? I quote, this is one down, 113 to go. There are 114 of these projects in the pipeline, unquote. Palmer is talking about the only proposal in Australia for a low emissions coal-fired power station, high efficiency, low emissions, which would be supplied with coal by Palmer's nearby Galilee Basin coal mine. It would be carbon neutral, or carbon dioxide neutral, and achieve net zero emissions. Indeed, Palmer's company has committed to buying carbon offsets and developing carbon capture and storage technology. The power plant would be built on a cattle property near Alpha, 440 kilometres west of Rockhampton in central Queensland. And Palmer's company Waratah Coal says it will need 545 workers during construction and 90 to operate the power station. None of that, none of that counts. The company has correctly said the project is consistent with the government's renewable energy and emissions reduction targets and would further reduce emissions by replacing older and less efficient power stations. But the Labor government wants the support of the Greens in the Senate. The sun will come up in the West before a high efficiency, low emissions, coal-fired power station is built in this country under a Labor government. The reason Mr Albanese says he won't ban coal and gas exploration is that he wants the export income, but he won't allow Australians to take advantage of our own resources. Dutton is right. He must keep his nerve and prosecute the case over and over and over again. This legislation is taking Australia into a litigious world and a world of energy poverty. China will plough on regardless and will be happy to build our solar panels and wind turbines and then happily reflect on the mugs that we are. Well, Nigel Farage is one of the most formidable political figures in the English-speaking world. He led the UK Independence Party from 2006 to 2009 with a focus on independence, which has as its subsequent equivalence the Brexit Party, which he led from 2009 to 2021. He was a member of the European Parliament for South East England from 1999 until the UK's exit from the EU in 2020. He currently is a very successful broadcaster for GB News in Britain. But for Australians, this charismatic and highly intelligent man and very entertaining is touring Australia shortly. He'll be appearing in Melbourne on September 26, in Sydney on Tuesday, September 27, and in Brisbane on Thursday, September 29. There are all the details on your screen. He's calling it an entertaining evening with Nigel Farage, and knowing the man as I do, it will be entertaining, I can tell you. Always entertaining. Success, as we always say, though, has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. There are many who claim success for the Brexit movement. But Nigel Farage has been a Eurosceptic for at least the last 30 years. He left the Conservative Party in 1992 after the signing of the Maastricht Treaty, which furthered European integration and founded the European Union. He didn't have too many political friends then, I can tell you. 
And I suppose if the old axiom is true, if you can't beat them, join them, he became a member of the European Parliament in the 1999 European elections, hoping one day that there would no longer be a seat for him. He was a vocal critic of the so-called European Union and a critic of the euro currency. Way back as leader of UKIP in the 2009 European elections, it became clear to him that the British mood was for independence. His party, the UK Independence Party, won the second highest share, even then, in 2009, of the UK popular vote with over 2 million votes. In a poll in 2013, Nigel Farage was ranked second in the Daily Telegraph's top 100 most influential right-wingers poll behind Prime Minister David Cameron. And in 2014, he was named by the Times newspaper as the Britain of the Year. In the 2014 European elections, his party, UKIP, won 24 seats, the first time a party other than Labor or the Conservatives had won the largest number of seats in a national election since the December 1910 general election. And I think it was this that prompted Prime Minister Cameron to call for a referendum since Nigel Farage had succeeded so overwhelmingly with the argument for independence. The Farage story is an extraordinary story. The successful Brexit referendum was in 2016. But frustrated with the delayed implementation of Brexit, Nigel Farage formed the Brexit Party. And with the UK still part of the European Union, the Brexit Party won the most votes in the May 29 European elections and became the largest single party in the European Parliament. Nigel Farage is not short of achievement, nor is he short of a view or two. And he joins me from London. Nigel, thank you for your time. Good to see you again. I can't begin to imagine what an entertaining evening with Nigel Farage might entail. But where did all this begin? From where did you get this passion for conservative politics? Well, I grew up in the 1970s in Britain, which was a deeply socialist state. Uh, income tax, uh, top rate was 83%. Uh, the top rate on unearned income was 98%. The hard left trade unions were in control. Uh, the Conservative Party in those days under Edward Heath had bowed to the pressure that came from mainstream media and the left. Uh, they'd overspent. We had inflation running at nearly 30%. We were the sick man of Europe. You'd have thought for all the world, the country was finished. And then this woman came along. I mean, from nowhere out of left field, a woman called Margaret Thatcher, and she said, you know what, we can't bow down to hard left socialism. We're going to get a grip on the money supply and make money sound again. We're going to help men and women who want to set up small enterprises and businesses and make them flourish. We're going to cut the top rate of tax so that our talented young people don't flee to America, Australia and the other parts of the world. And what we saw was frankly nothing short of an economic miracle. And because of that, I was part of the British Conservative Party. But after she'd gone, they went back to the bad old ways, to the bad old ways of the boys who go to Eton, everyone going to Oxford University, everyone getting the same degree, lots and lots of people who were landowners, who had no interest in ordinary men and women. And, and basically, I watched the Conservative Party become a globalist party, 30 years ago. And do you know what I thought? I thought those that went before us, the generations immediately before me, for liberty and freedom and democracy 
and the nation state, they had to fight two world wars with, of course, huge help from countries like Australia. And now I watched all of those achievements, all of those freedoms being eroded, salami sliced at time, little piece by little piece. And I I was then a businessman. I'd spent 20 years working in the commodities business, the metals business. And I went around and I met MPs and I met journalists. I started to talk to people about my fears of globalism, of the European Union, of the loss of democratic self-control, the loss of individuals to actually be the masters of their own destiny. And I shared my fears with these prominent people. And lots of them said, well, of course, Nigel, we agree with you, but it's much too difficult to say Mm. anything because there is a consensus behind this. And I thought, very simply, almost exactly 30 years ago, I thought, you know what? If they haven't got the guts to stand up and fight for what is right, I'm going to have a go myself. And a lot of people thought it was madness. I mean, my family, my friends, my business partners and colleagues all thought I must have smoked something funny. (laughs) Um, But I just believed, I just believed that it is the independent nation state run through democracy, operating on the basis of the rule of law. It was that that had made the English-speaking countries of the world, the great countries, the countries of innovation. But Nigel, having heard uh, that, that, having heard that and what you said, the collapse of the Thatcher legacy, we're living in very difficult geopolitical times now. I would argue there is a crisis in Western political leadership. I mean, you've just spoken to a packed US conservative rally last Saturday in America, declaring that if America fails, we all fail. But with Biden in cognitive decline, What are the odds of that failure with President Xi on the move? Well, absolutely. And that's one of the great threats that we face. But we face two threats, Alan, don't we? All of us. And and one of the reasons I'm coming to Australia is actually the challenges that we face are almost identical across the English-speaking world. The external challenge, the external challenge, of course, is China more than anything else. But the internal challenges, they're the ones that we can deal with with the right level of political leadership. They call it woke. They call yep. it culture wars. Yes. Actually, actually, what's really going on here is everything about our nations, our Judeo-Christian roots, our past, our history, our identity, is all under attack from the left. The march through the institutions, particularly the educational establishment, the poisoning of the minds of our young children, the telling to a young person of colour, you're a victim, and a young person who's white, you are an oppressor. These are all leading us to a catastrophic, Absolutely. divided future. Absolutely. And it's being led, it's being led by hardline Marxists, but, and here's the point that I made at CPAC last weekend, that I'm making every day here on GB News in the UK, and the message I want to bring to Australia. And it's very straightforward, it's very simple, but I believe it's very important. Much of the reason we're in this mess is because conservatives have not had the courage, correct, the guts to get into the, the ring and fight, to, to get into the ring and fight. Yeah, to get into Absolutely. the ring and fight. Absolutely. I mean, you talked in America about the need to stand up for the free world, but coronavirus saw people in the so-called free world stripped of the most basic freedoms to the extent that some of those freedoms may never return. And those freedoms were taken away from us in Australia by conservative governments. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is twofold. Number one, conservatives need to stand up and fight for what is right and not worry 
about criticism that comes Good from mainstream, ultra-liberal media. And number two, and this is even more important and I hope inspiring, take the British Conservative Party, right? It had become completely globalist, utterly useless. I challenged them and I, in your kind introduction, I beat them time and time again. They were terrified. If we don't do something, Farage will become prime minister. And I would have done, but they adapted, they changed. They went out in 2019 under Boris Johnson with a manifesto that was conservative. We're going to take back control of our country, take back control of our borders. We're going to give you a new kind of more robust politics. And guess what happened? They won. Oh, landslide. So when conservative parties, Mm. when conservative parties and conservative movements speak not just to inner city elites, but out to ordinary people, yeah. they inspire them Quite. to vote for them. Well, can I so just say to our I viewers, can I just say to our viewers, uh, the Liberal people yeah. out listening to this, Nigel Farage said in America only at the weekend, when conservative policies stop being conservative, Nigel said, guess what happens? They lose elections. I'll tell you what, that's the message that Australia have got to embrace. Yes, it really is. And I think the Liberal Party will go through this debate and some will say, ah, well, now look what happened in the suburbs in Australia, in the wealthier suburbs in Australia. You know, these women who were very worried about climate change got elected and therefore that's the direction we've yes. got to go in. No, 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 Good on no, you. no. Good on that you. will not work. You've actually got to you've actually got to stand up, be robustly conservative, and I Not that it's my job to tell Australia what to do. I'm just going to draw parallels and give examples. But I think a Liberal Party in Australia that said the state has taken too much power, the state has taken way too much responsibility over your lives, we are going to give those freedoms back to you. I think after the almost, well, can I say hysterical lockdowns that Australia put into place, I think it's messages like that that will inspire ordinary folk. I agree. And, of course, you've got to have the courage and the guts to do it. Get into the ring and fight. But we tend to surrender or think we can join the other side and people will think, oh, well, you know, they're embracing the sort of policies that have been successful. They may as well have the real product, the socialist left. You've said the responsibility is yours. To all, to everyone watching you here, to everyone you spoke to in America, the responsibility is yours. Do you think will be equal to the challenge. I mean, you think you alluded to what's going on in our schools, what's going on in our universities, that the parents are struggling to keep food on the table rather than fight the the culture battles. Do you think we're equal to that challenge? Do you know what? I am a wild optimist. You are? There's no question about you that. Are I'll a super optimist. Yeah. Because, because for, for most of my 27-year political journey, for most of that time... Everybody told me it's impossible. It cannot be done. You've got the global elites against you. You've got the giant multinational corporations. You've got the media. You've got the political establishment. It can't be done. And yet we did it. And why did we do it? How did we do it? Brexit was a grassroots revolution. And yes, I was out there for 27 years speaking in little town halls and pubs and wherever I went, basically saying to people, If you care about the legacy that your fathers and grandfathers fought for, if you want to give your kids a free, independent 
United Kingdom to live in, there's only one person you can look to in the shaving mirror in the morning, and that is you. Good on if you. If you're prepared to stand up. Absolutely. If you're prepared to stand up. Fabulous. We can do this. Fabulous. Alan, Alan we did it. We yeah, did we did it. it. We I know won. you did. It I is, know you did. In, it's an amazing victory. In, so, in spades. So, so can, I've got to ask can, you. Can you turn the tide? Yeah, of course you can. Can you turn can. the tide in Australia? Yeah, of course you can. Yes, absolutely. Of course you can. And you're doing it. We're trying to do it here. Just I've got to ask you, Donald Trump spoke at that conference as well. Tell us about Donald Trump. Will he run in 2024? I'm an unapologetic Trump supporter, <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> well, I've over the last year, um, I've been to see him a few times down at Mar-a-Lago. And I've got to tell you, he is more relaxed more laid back, he's lost weight, he's playing loads of golf, which is good. I think he should be playing loads of golf, getting exercise. I would say he's lost, uh, in kilo terms, seven, eight kilos since he was um, in the White House. He is full of new ideas, full of energy, utterly determined. And I'll let you into a minor secret. He said to me last year, what would you do if you were me? I said, well, if I had a wife like yours, <laughs> if I had a, a, a if I had an array of private golf courses all over the world like yours, if I had the great family and great kids, and they are great kids yeah. that you've got, and this lifestyle at Mar-a-Lago, and I was 75, I'd say, you know what? I've done my bit. I'm going to live one of the most incredible lifestyles any human being's ever had for the rest of my days. I said, but. The trouble is, I don't see another world leader with the courage to call out China and offer alternatives. And I don't, absolutely don't see a world leader that will take on the global liberal establishment that have poisoned our universities and the whole of our structure. I said, you are the only man that can do this. I said, Brexit, I'm very proud that Brexit was the first brick out of the wall. But the real cultural battle for all of us in the English-speaking world, the epicentre of that battle is now America. I said, if America falls, we'll all fall. And I said to him, I just think, I'm sorry, but I think you've got to do this again. And he just looked at me <laughs> and nodded. Yeah. And I, I, Alan, he's going to do this. Yeah. He's going to do this. He is going to do this. <laughs> just before you go, Sunak and Truss for the Prime Ministership, um, how do they rate with Boris Johnson? Well, Boris, of course, um, very good at spreading optimism, uh, very good at being amusing, uh, very good at detecting the political wind and jumping on it. And remember, he joined the Brexit campaign at five minutes to midnight, but he did join the Brexit campaign. Massive majority, he blew it. Uh, the moral of the story is he was elected as a Conservative, he governed as a Liberal, that saw support melt Correct. away. Correct. To top it off, he proved to be an outright liar, and the British won't put up with that, I'm pleased to say. Sad, a terrible waste, but done. Now we have Sunak, ex-Goldman Sachs, um, utterly globalist in every instinct. I mean, he might as well. He might as well just be a sort of candidate for the World Economic Forum, frankly. And then we've got Liz Truss, who was a member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, but she was a kid as a young adult, was in the Liberal Democrats, um, advocated the abolition of the monarchy, amongst many other things. Then, in the biggest decision that British political figures had to make since 1945, namely, do you back leave or remain? She backed remain. 
She then voted for Mrs May's treacherous sellout uh, three times, that sellout that I managed in the end to beat. And now she tells us she's Mrs Thatcher reincarnate and she's going to be tough. Alan, I don't know what to believe. Um, <laughs> she will win. Uh, I mean, trust will win. And people are telling me, Nigel, it's going to be great. She's going to be amazing. She's going to be so strong. She's going to be so conservative. Well, compared to Boris Johnson, she will be a conservative, I'm sure. But whether she... Here's the point. You get elected saying we're going to control our borders. I mean, take illegal immigration. We've got a sort of 2012-style Australia problem here in the English Channel. You get elected saying, I'm going to fight this. Then when you get to number 10 Downing Street, you're surrounded by civil servants, you're surrounded by a hostile media, and if you really want to carry those policies through, you've got to have the courage of conviction of, say, a Tony Abbott, which he did have back in 2012. Um, has she got it when it comes to it? I hope and pray that she does, but I very much doubt it. Wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you. To our viewers, that's what you're going to get an evening with this bloke. Fluent, articulate, informed, courageous and successful. Lovely to talk to you, Nigel. We'll catch up with you when you get to Sydney. Uh, one final question. Um, some will ask you, what's the future for Nigel Farage? Are you going to give up smoking? Oh, no. I mean, I'm an unrepentant sinner um, in virtually everything. Um, and I see... I see no prospect of any positive improvement at all. I shall go on living exactly the way I've lived. And if people like it, that's great. And if they don't, they can go to hell. It's very <laughs> Good on you. Well done. Lovely to talk to you, Nigel. Look, you can get your tickets. It's on the screen there. NigelLive.com.au. Well worth the money, I can tell you. Great to talk. Good luck. Good health. And we'll catch up soon. I look forward to it. There he is. Nigel Farage. Well, two further issues loom large at the end of this broadcasting week, although I have already alluded to one and I'll amplify those comments shortly. But the whole world is in shock at the raid on Donald Trump's Florida home. This will be the subject of intense scrutiny in order to seek the background to and reasons for such a raid. It has already emerged that the federal judge who reportedly signed off on the warrant had donated money to Obama's presidential campaign and to the Obama Victory Fund. And that same judge represented employees of the late convicted pedophile Jeffrey Epstein in connection with sex trafficking investigations. It's now clear the FBI sent roughly two dozen agents and technicians to Trump's Florida resort to carry out a search warrant reportedly over classified documents the former president may have taken with him from the White House in January 2021. I should point out here, though, that even if they're classified documents, you'd have all of these FBI nobodies pouring over them. How's that for security? Anyway, there are many who say that if they were in search of classified documents, this could have easily been achieved through legal negotiations. And the question is asked, how is it that Hillary Clinton used bleach to destroy a hard drive that included classified documents, but there were no raids on her home, no prosecution? It's a matter of fact that Hillary Clinton used a private email server to conduct official state business, with more than 2,000 of them classified by the State Department, and she later deleted about 33,000 emails before government officials could investigate them. Raided? No. As things stand today on what is known 
In political terms, these heavy-handed tactics are backfiring badly with American voters. Now, the other issue of importance I have alluded to, it's closer to home. ADH, as you know, offers you a splendid program on Friday night at 8pm. Tomorrow night, Nick Cater's Battleground. In fact, Nick Cater will be joining Fred Paul tonight after 9pm. But today, I heaved a sigh of relief that it's now no longer left to Matt Canavan, Terry McCrann and me to raise the lunacy of what has been shoved down our throats in relation to these net zero emissions. Nick Cater has today written in The Australian an extraordinary piece. It is, I have to say, one of the finest and most comprehensive analyses of the Bowen and Albanese folly. He refers firstly to the rolled gold promise of a 275 reduction in the average family's annual power bill, which he rightly argues, quote, the incurious press pack, incurious indeed. They just swallowed what they were told without analysis because Bowen assured everybody it was backed by extensive modelling, which we'd never seen. Where were the media analysing it? Nowhere. As Nick Cater says, seven months later, the modelling has become unstuck. And in spite of endless invitations from the opposition to repeat the 275 promise, the Prime Minister has declined. But as Nick Cater writes today, Labor has pushed on with the 43% emissions reduction by 2030 into legislation. Writes Nick Cater, Bowen's pugnacious manner and conceited answers in question time have failed to dispel the impression that he's out of his depth and the Prime Minister has bitten off more than he can chew. Then this, and I quote, for those who understand the economic and engineering challenges of weather-dependent energy, there is an impending sense of disaster as the Albanese government steams ahead on a rigid course. Locking in a target, come hell or high water, will accelerate the closure of coal-fired plants for which there is no viable alternative, unquote. Then listen to this, which I have raised a thousand times, but thankfully Nick Cater is now as well. Quote, hitting the magic net zero emissions goal in 2050 will require 30 times more storage capacity and five times as much rooftop solar. Grid capacity must expand by 80% and we'll need a ninefold increase in grid scale wind and solar, unquote. Now picture this, solar panels and wind turbines everywhere, farmland littered with them. Now, we're not just talking about solar panels on the roof, on the roof of your home. I mean, there are farms in Australia, which I have seen, for miles and miles and miles, agricultural land gone, and there are solar panels. Writes Nick Cater, the social and environmental costs of broadacre renewable farming have barely been considered. They will transform the landscape around towns such as Bendigo, Dubbo, Inverell, Gladstone, Rockhampton, in designated renewable energy zones. Untold swathes of farmland, of farmland will be covered in solar panels with an estimated lifespan of 25 years. What happens next or after that, nobody knows. But as Nick Cater says, the extra 28 gigawatts of grid-scale renewable energy, the Australian energy market operator says we'll need by 2030, requires commandeering hundreds of square kilometres of land to reach the net zero 2050 target with 50% solar, just solar, would require an area the size of Canberra." Unquote. The point is this, and it's a simple one. If Peter Dutton can shut up the bedwetters, this is the path to victory, unlikely path to an unlikely victory in 2025. 
The greens, the teals and labour can be wiped out because as we are saying, this emissions nonsense has disaster written all over it. We've seen it in Europe. It will arrive here. The Dutton opposition need to get aboard the political train which says disaster down the track. You know, I can't recall the number of times in my broadcasting career that I have talked about the issue of debt. And now with inflation rates, as predicted by the Reserve Bank and Treasury, wildly inaccurate interest rate increases are far from over. We are in for a rough and uncomfortable ride. The debt is a consequence of government spending. There's no other way of putting it. We saw during coronavirus wild, reckless and unnecessary spending when people who weren't at risk were told they couldn't work and businesses were closed and billions of dollars in compensation was dished out. To say nothing of the notion that we were told the vaccinations were free, the boosters were free, the testing was free, nothing is free. We've never been told what the pharmaceutical companies were paid for what was allegedly free. Billions of dollars, I suspect. But at the end of the day, you and I will pay for it. To put this in perspective, our debt is now 42.5% of GDP. Gough Whitlam was regarded as an economic dunce. His was 24.5% of GDP. Someone in government is going to have to get serious about managing our money because the budget papers tell us that the debt will climb to 44.9% of GDP in two years' time. Now, forget the politics. That, under the Morrison Liberal government, is almost twice as bad as anything by a Labor government in the last 50 years. It will be a long while before Liberal governments can talk about, quote, strong economic management. But back to the wonderful people at the Institute of Public Affairs. We speak to Daniel Wilde every week because he has things to say. In a statement released this week, Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, said, and I quote, the consequence of two decades of reckless government spending is set to be multiplied as rapidly rising interest rates will cause an explosion in the federal government's debt repayment obligations. Daniel joins me. Daniel, thank you for your time. Look, it is a very important issue that we focus on debt, but there is no comfort in these figures, is there? No, there's no comfort at all, Alan, and great to be with you as always. Uh, what we know, and as you identified, is inflation is increasing rapidly, interest rates are going up rapidly, and what that means is the massive debt burden that we now have of almost a trillion dollars, that's going to accelerate because the interest payments on debt will keep going up. What our analysis identified is that at a cash rate of just 5%, the interest payments on debt will go from $20 billion today to $75 billion that's B by for the billion. end of the decade. B for billion. B for billion each and every year. Now, that would make interest payments on debt the third largest spending item of any government, mm. uh, any government spending item on the books. Higher, uh, more than double what we spend on defence, more than double what we spend on education, and three times what we spend on the NDIS. So this issue of debt is getting worse. And as you rightly identify, Alan, we need to cut spending and we need to cut it very fast to get the debt payments down. Well, there, the IPH, can I say to my viewers, have released a research paper. It's got a long title, but a significant title. It's called Australia's Debt Disaster 
estimating interest repayments on federal government debt by 2030. And you heard Daniel say that estimate by 2030 is 89B for billion, $89 billion interest on the debt by 2030. Now, this is a consequence of Treasury revising its inflation rate estimate to 7.75%. That's inflation. So the Reserve Bank have warned they'll keep increasing interest rates having got it hopelessly wrong last year, they'll keep increasing interest rates in order to suffocate inflation. So, Daniel, there are going to be dramatic increases in the cost of servicing the government debt, let alone, sadly, in the cost of servicing the mortgage. Well, that's exactly right, Alan. And once the interest rates take off, uh, the debt is very hard to get under control yes. because the amount of obligations you owe keep going up and up. And the government needs to get a handle on spending. The, the, all debt at the end of the day is at some point caused by higher spending. And I think there's three things at a headline level, the government at the federal level must do. The first is they should be cutting every government department's budget by 1% per year until the budget is back in the surplus. The second thing is immediately freeze all federal public service hiring and freeze the wages. And the third thing is the federal government needs to stop intervening in any role that should be the responsibility of state governments, whether that's in health, education, uh, the environment. There's a range of areas where there's so much duplication and unnecessary spending. If you undertake those three reforms, that would be a very good start to getting the spending under control so then we can start paying down the debt. Yeah, very good point. But you see, the people watching you tonight are saying, well, why are you telling me this? I, I've contributed nothing to the problem because almost every crisis we face is caused by disastrous government policies. But those people who are the architects of those policies are gone and the mess is left for others to clean up. So your research shows that if the cash rate, and we've got to say this again, set by the Reserve Bank, reaches 7% by 2030, annual interest repayments, you can't get your head around this, will reach $89 billion. Now that's four times the current annual interest repayments. So you've put that, you just said it, but let's repeat it, Daniel. You put that into perspective. So those repayments on the debt, now Daniel just made this point, would be double the current annual defence budget, double, double the current annual education budget, three times the current budget for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and equivalent to the cost of purchasing a fleet of six nuclear submarines. I mean, how do we get government to... Un See, we're to blame for this a bit, mind you. I mean, come election time, no one says, listen, forget all that other crap you're talking about. I want you to tell me about debt and I want you to give an assurance, if you want me to vote for you, that you're going to do something about retiring debt. We don't do that, do we? No, you're right, Alan. It's, a, it's an important point. Uh, there's a couple of... Uh, messages I'd have here. The first is that we need to have political leadership that's in the long-term national interest. The last time we had that was in the 2014 Abbott budget, which undertook the politically difficult task of starting to get the budget back into shape by restraining spending, paying down the debt and having a long-term capacity to get our budget under control. But since then, there's just been more and more spending. And then before that, we have to go right back to Howard and Costello. Don't forget back in 1996, when Howard and Costello came into government, there was about $100 billion in debt. 
by the time they left government in 2007, None. None. that had all been paid down. Gone. And that was due to spending restraint uh, spearheaded by Peter Costello in terms of looking for the national interest. As you say, there's always going to be sectional interests in our community that want more and more mm. spending. Mm. And the lazy way of doing that as mm. a government is simply pay off yes. those people through more money. Yes. Uh, but uh, as we saw with Howard and Costello and with the first Abbott budget, what you have to do is ignore those sectional interests, appeal to the national interests to say, as a nation, we must undertake some kind of sacrifice in order to ensure that future generations can enjoy the standard of living that we have all enjoyed. But that requires leadership. It requires courage and vision. Yeah, but so you've got a Liberal government in New South Wales, a Liberal government who brought down a budget only a couple of months ago. They boasted about it, but it embarked on a $27 billion spending spree, $27 billion. The growth in spending, growth, was 26.5%. The gross debt, $182 billion. And in a budget of $95 billion, there were only 32 M for million, million dollars in savings. Then in Queensland, where they're awash with royalties from the high prices being paid for coal and oil and LNG, they're still running a deficit of more than a billion dollars. But they've got house prices, stamp duty there in Queensland. Queensland, as you're listening, was more than $9 billion greater than in the last financial year. But the government's borrowings in Queensland will go from $54 billion last financial year to 87 billion in 2025-26. It's a rise of 66%. Mind you, the New South Wales net debt in the same times climbed 200%. So Daniel, who is pulling these governments into line? Well, that's a good question, Alan. And the issue is very few people. Don't forget back when we go back one or two decades, corporate Australia, for example, was much different. Corporate Australia would help lead the debate Yes. on economic reform, help lead the debate on long-term economic yep. interests. Now they're just as bad as governments. They've got the, the media out. Got the handout. Uh, very rarely hold. Yeah. They get the handouts. They're on the tier of government. And same as when we've got media, the media is doing a very poor job because, of course, so many journalists have an interest in currying favour with the government of the day so they get the good stories. So they're less likely to hold government to account than in the past. So this is not just a failure of politicians. This is a failure of Australia's governing and economic institutions. You rightly pointed out the significant failures of the Reserve Bank when it came to managing the cash mm. rate and interest rates. Mm. We've also got a massive failure of Treasury, mm. which has been telling governments to spend, spend, yes, spend, yes. rather than reducing the spending and paying down the debt. So unlike two or three decades ago when we had good economic management and the institutions of our society were at least making the debate and making the case about why we need economic reform. Today, we have basically a corporatist set up in our nation where all the main governing institutions of our society benefit from this massive government spending. Just to take one example, as you know, Alan, the billions and billions each year that are handed out to renewable energy companies, the nice. solar and wind subsidies, yep. no one's going to complain about that mm -hmm. uh, because they benefit from those subsidies. Mm -hmm. Multiply that right across our society and our economy, there are more and more people than ever before in our nation that rely on government subsidies for their own uh, well-being. And so they're not going to call it out. And so this is the key issue that we face. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Daniel. I mean, as you make, made the point before, there's only one answer to retire it. You either increase taxes or you reduce spending. What do you want? 
No one in government wants to talk about either. Daniel, you and I will continue to talk about it. It's always good to talk to you. And thank you for the work the IPA are doing. But out there, who in government is listening? Daniel Wild, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. See you next week, Daniel. Pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Daniel Wild, fluent, informed, but government, who's listening? Well, before we go to Fred Paul, there are dark economic clouds ahead, and I'm really struggling to find one politician who fully understands all of this. Families and businesses are rightly worried as cost of living pressures mount. Workers are demanding higher wages, which is only natural, but that's not really the answer. That will only lead to a wage price spiral. Commonwealth Bank's Matt Common says, if businesses are pegging wage rises to elevated levels of inflation, that could spur even more aggressive interest rate rises. And he's right. And this is where the ACTU is dead wrong when they argue wages must keep up with inflation and social benefits and income support must be fully and promptly indexed to the actual consumer prices paid by recipients. Now, that would just further fuel inflation. Now, mind you, I've got every sympathy for the ACTU. They're just doing their job and saying what their members expect of them. But if you're batting for Australia, you couldn't possibly agree to such demands. This isn't just an Australian problem. It's happening all over the world. Energy costs going through the roof are because of brain-dead politicians prematurely pushing renewables onto us. This obsession with phasing out fossil fuels and demonising coal is denying households and industry cheap baseload power. We can't create wealth if we continue down this net zero path. In Britain, it's predicted that 20% of a household's income each month will now go to energy costs. And this is ridiculous. Australian businesses and manufacturing jobs are moving offshore because it's cheaper to operate elsewhere. Not that Chris Bowen cares, I suppose. Sure, external factors have contributed to the economic turbulence, like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but stop using that as an excuse. It isn't the sole reason. It isn't even the major reason. Well before all that, government expenditure, as I've already said to Daniel Wilde tonight, was through the roof and inflationary, making the economy run hot. If we want to avoid a recession and get out of this mess, Politicians need to rein in government spending. If Australians won't work, reduce the welfare payments and force them to get off their backsides and work. If not, bring in foreign workers who'll do the job. That'll solve the labour shortage and help businesses. We also need the bloated bureaucracy, and Daniel made this point, to get out of the way. In other words, reduce the size of government departments. That'd be a start. Get out of the way and allow businesses to grow and be productive. This is the housing crisis. There are plenty of people out there, businesses ready to build housing, but bureaucracy and government departments get in the road. Politicians like this New South Wales Treasurer Keane and others need to stop these taxpayer-funded spending sprees. Fancy there being $27 billion of spending in one New South Wales budget, spending growth of 26.5%. That's growth. Government expenditure, both state and federal, is out of control and has been for more than a decade. We need more efficiency with taxpayers' money, lower taxes and get rid of endless volumes of regulation. Grow the economic pie. But so long as we spend billions on pointless green energy plans and allow people who are more than capable of working to live off welfare and punish businesses by denying them the staff they need, we will continue to go backwards. 
Someone with political courage is needed to make tough decisions. Who is that someone? Well, that's it for me tonight. Keep watching as Fred Paul takes you into the next hour. And remember to watch Nick Cater's Battleground tomorrow night at 8pm here on ADH-TV. Thank you for watching ADH-TV. Good night.